Give it up for the band. You know, as Jesus carries on in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he uses a few metaphors. We are to be salt, light, and even a city on a hill. Now, what does salt, light, and a city on a hill have in common? And as you think about that before you answer, let me make it a little bit harder. What do salt, light, a city on a hill, and this suit have in common? Here's the answer. When they are present, you know it. There's absolutely no mistaking that they are around. Now I'm gonna go ahead and take this off. I have, I'm fully clothed underneath. <laughs> I'm gonna set it here because I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess that it would be hard to take me seriously <laughs> if I wore this during the entire sermon. But there's absolutely no mistaking when those things are around. And I, I think that's, that's gonna become even more important as we look at what Jesus says here. So let's turn over to Matthew chapter five. And let's just read those verses quickly. I think we, am I, am I doing the slides? Is that what's happening? That's probably why this clicker's here. Yes, okay. So we're gonna talk about salt and light today. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your God and heaven. Now, important clarification there because later in the sermon, Jesus will say in chapter six, don't do things to be seen by others. And here it says, but we are doing things to be visible. Well, the marker there is why we're doing it. Are we bringing glory to God or so that we're seen as individuals and, or as a community and noticed? And so he says, you as my people, you are salt, you are light, you are a city on a hill. When you are in the room, everybody knows it. Now, it helped to have, and the band did a great job, it helped to, have a little bit of music and you know highlight things. But if I would have come out in that suit without the music, I'm guessing you still would have noticed <laughs> the suit. It's, it's just there. I wouldn't have even had to been on stage. If I would have walked in and sat in the back, you know, over here on the right, you all would have been like, it draws attention. But 
there's an interesting element here because in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's redefining life. He's redefining who we are going to be as a community and he's calling us to live out this whole different reality. We're living out, as we've talked before, the future right now, right? And so we're doing this whole different thing and that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is, is this is what it looks like to live the future well in the present age. It's shocking, it's different, it's unique. And so one of the questions becomes, for the hearers initially, is who does Jesus think he is? Who, who does he think he is that he gets to redefine all of this? And Matthew actually answers that question for us. Now, we know this passage well at the end, right? Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all what? Authority. That's a big word. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and teaching them to obey and, and you see the rest. Go and make disciples. In other words, bring people into this way of life. This, this life that I have lived, that I have demonstrated, your purpose now is to take this shape and bring other people into it. Why does he get to say this? Because he has all authority. Now, if we've been following the clues that Matthew's laid out throughout the book, that word should jump out at us, right? Because if we go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd were, crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. So Matthew's laid a seed there. He's laying out this new way of living as one who had authority. Well, that begs the question, does he have authority? Do we have to wait until the last chapter to find out that he has all authority? And why does he have all authority? Because he says so? But look at what Matthew does in the next few chapters. The very next verses. Jesus displays his authority over leprosy and people being excluded from the community. He gets to redefine who's in and who's out. Then a centurion is amazed at his authority, recognizes it and says, you can just tell people to go. I know authority when I see it. Then each story emphasizes his authority and a lot of them use that term. He had authority over illness. He had authority to fulfill prophecy. He had authority to redefine Elijah's discipleship. That whole passage there is kind of an echo of what Elijah did, but Jesus is making it even greater. Then he has authority over the wind and waves. Who, who is this? He has authority over the demonic realm. It's a much bigger deal for first century people than it is for us. For us, that's just a neat aside. For them, that's massive. Then chapter nine, I won't break down each one, but he has, he has authority over sin, 
disease. He can redefine the law. He has authority over death, over illness, over all kinds of maladies. And it goes on. He has authority. And then in chapter 10, he shares his authority with his community that he's created around him and said, now you go do these things. So when he says, all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples, there's a specific thing he has in mind there. What kind of disciples? And I think that's important because sometimes we just get lost in the process of it and in function it becomes we go make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and what are we making disciples for? So that they make more disciples. So that they come and join us and then we can get bigger and bigger and make more and more disciples. But if there's not a what kind of disciple that's answered somewhere in there, it becomes a religious amway. That's an old reference, isn't it? For those of you who are under 40, ask someone later, they'll explain it. What kind of disciples? This is where Matthew has brilliantly laid the clues. We're supposed to follow that word authority and go back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, oh, those kind of disciples. That's what he means. That's what he's calling us to. This is the life that we are supposed to be passing on, calling people into. This is, this is what it looks like. Now, there's a term here, you don't have to remember it, but it's called chiasm. I know Kendall a couple weeks ago mentioned this. Um, I feel like he maligned me a little bit. I'm kidding. He's like, what kind of word is that? We, Michael's throwing big words out. No, he did a great job. I watched his sermon. He did awesome. But chiasm is basically a pattern. It's a, it doesn't, not all chiasms are this long. It can be as simple as A, B, B, A, but it's always that reverse one, two, three, three, two, one, right? Sometimes it's one, two, three, four, three, two, one, but usually what a chiasm does, and it's very common in Hebrew writing, is it comes towards the center and then that center repeating mark is kind of the thrust of everything. It's at the heart of what you're saying. And so while, the, while there's a chiasm in, in kind to the Beatitudes themselves, there's a larger chiasm, this one, two, three, three, two, one pattern in the whole Sermon on the Mount, which ends properly at chapter seven, verse 12, where Jesus sums it all up and says, therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's kind of a summary statement. And then he goes into the warnings of not listening to the Sermon on the Mount, not living it out as a community. So the first beatitude, poor in spirit, matches up towards the end, verse seven through 11 of chapter seven, where what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you keep asking, you keep seeking, you keep knocking. That's what somebody who's poor in spirit looks like. They know that I can't do it on my own. I know that I need to keep going to God to live this kind of life, right? And it goes on from there. Mourners, those who take sin and the, and the situation of the world seriously, what does that look like? Where does it start? 
If you're really grieving and serious over sin, then you start with yourself and not with pointing fingers at everyone else. And so it matches up with Matthew 7, verse one through six. You see what I'm saying? We're not gonna go through all that, but I wanna highlight the middle there. The last beatitude is about being persecuted. And then he goes in to be salt and light. Do you catch that pairing? Not only put the suit on so that everybody sees you, know that everybody in the room also hates you. I don't know if I wanna wear this in a room. See, it's easy for me to wear this here because you all are so kind and hospitable and welcoming. I love coming to North River. It's amazing, it feels like I'm coming to home every time and I've never lived here. I'm serious. But this would be harder to wear in a room where everybody hated me, didn't want me around. This would not be my choice of wardrobe in that type of situation, right? Maybe Jeff Hickman would wear it, but. (laughs) I actually did borrow that out of Jeff's closet, by the way. There is no way your wife would let you wear that. (laughs) Now, so back to Matthew 5. And let's look at this in context here for just a minute. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of, the righte- because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me just stop here real quick and say that word righteousness is a little bit dicey for us in English, right? Because we tend to think of it as personal moral goodness or some kind of connection with God or you know that sort of thing. And, and there is that element But ultimately that word can be translated rightly, either righteousness or justice. And so I'm gonna refer to it as a just righteousness so that we kind of hear both elements there, right? And, And what it kind of refers to is that not to get too into this, but I think it'll help us kind of see the, the picture here, is God creates the world of image bearers. We, I know we've talked about that before, if you've heard me speak. God creates this world of image bearers, and, and the whole point of image bearing is that we're all of equal status. We're all, it's, it's level, it's egalitarian in that sense. Nobody's better than anybody else. Nobody has advantages, nobody's superior, inferior. All these classes and statuses and levels that we create in human beings, that's not God's plan for us. That's actually what the serpent introduces by saying you can be superior to that. And so some go superior and they push others down and we get these levels. And the existence of those levels in society is, biblically speaking, injustice. We're not talking about the world's definitions of justice and injustice. We're talking about Bible here. These levels of some people are better than others is injustice. And God's people are called to live a just righteousness. A just righteousness is being in right relationship with one another, which I'm gonna signify by doing this, right? And God, so the only one that has a status above is God. 
everyone else is equal, that's just righteousness. That's what his rule and reign looks like. But instead, we have a world of this. Does that make sense? So, blessed are those who are persecuted because of just righteousness. Guess what? The world does not like this. It's even hard for some of us. It's really hard for some of us, let's be honest. Because this means change. It means breaking down the walls that divide. It means examining some of the structures that we like to remain blind to, that benefit some of us, that we've grown comfortable with. It means breaking these down and creating this. And when you do this, the world gets nervous. The Roman Empire could care less if you had a new religion. They had plenty of room for new religions. What they had a problem with was this. A community where a slave could come in and be an elder? No, 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 no. Where everybody's equal, see that breaks down this. And my living is built on this. My family's comfort is built on this. And if I'm up here, I don't want to be around these people. But you're calling me to this. So if we live this, persecution will come. You'll get called all kinds of things for just doing this. And if there's not persecution, then the Bible kind of asks the question, are you sure you're doing this? Now, I'm not talking about persecution being criticized for being unchristlike. That's being criticized for being unchristlike. I'm not calling about people just, you know, kind of knock you because they don't understand you. I'm not talking about verbal things. I'm talking about actual being persecuted because we're living God's rule and reign. And then he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Because you're doing this. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets before you. Now, what's the connection there? Why were the prophets persecuted? Because they came to Israel and said, you are supposed to be God's agent, his representative people, and you are not doing this. You are doing this. Just like the world. And so when the world looks and sees this in Israel, it doesn't see this, how does it know who I am? Why would they choose me when you just have your own version of the steps? Right? And so the prophets came and weren't popular because what the prophets didn't do is say, hey, Israel, so you're Israel, right? Have you seen the nations? Look how sinful the nations are. Look how off from God's plan they are. You people need to go share your faith with them because they're off. That's not what the prophets did. The prophets came out and said, I have a message from the Lord. 
you are not representing God. You are not living this. You're doing this. And they won't know me. Now they're doing this too. They're off. I'll deal with them. But first I'm going to deal with you. So when Jesus says you'll be prosecuted like, persecuted like the prophets, this is exactly what he's calling his people to be. It's not going to be popular. So notice what he said. It's not going to be popular. People are not going to like it. It's going to not fit with the world. It's going to not be comfortable. People right next to you may not even like that message. But you are the salt of the earth. Now we could break that down, and I know some have in well salt back then, and it was rocks, and it preserved, and it did this and that. That's all fine. I'm not going to do that today, because I'm kind of looking at the larger metaphor of what he's doing here. Salt, light, city on a hill. When these things are there, there's no mistaking it. You don't hide it. It's obvious because it's so different. If you have a bland piece of meat and you suddenly pour salt on it, boom, it's a whole new meal. If you have a dark little house and you suddenly light a, a lamp in the middle of it, boom, it's different. There's no mistaking it. That's what he says, let your light shine before others. Now, there's certainly an individual element to that and we'll get to that. We'll actually cover that in a, in a, a little bit after the sermon. That's confusing, but you'll see what I mean. But I'm not gonna highlight the individual aspects of this because we're pretty good at those and we'll get to those. We, we, we immediately jump to the individual aspects. Jesus here is talking to us as a community, creating that corporate agent of God. How are we as a community? Are we living as a people that we're called to be? Are we living this? Are we showing this to the world? Do they come in and see this? And incidentally, this is more than just being diverse. A lot of things that are diverse, but still have this. And being that people, this is really what Dr. King was talking about 60 years ago, 70 years ago. That sounds like a long time now, doesn't it? It was that long ago, wasn't it? When he talked about the beloved community. This is the vision, is God's corporate agent, people being the light, living this. So what are the dangers here? of covering our light. Well, I'll get to that, but I, I, I wanna just say, before we get there, that throughout Matthew, and in fact, in, in Matthew chapter four, verse 14, he, he talks about, um, he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, these people living in darkness have seen a great light. So he's already laid the ground for this before he got into the Sermon on the Mount. That's why, um, it was mentioned that sometimes, some say the Sermon on the Mount kind of starts in chapter four. You start seeing the literary foundation for it. Well, Matthew is clearly pointing to Isaiah here. Let me just, it's not gonna be on the board. You don't have to read it. I've just decided to do this. 
But let me read two passages from Isaiah that Matthew points to. Isaiah 54, verse four. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instructions will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. Isaiah 60, verse three. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now let me just ask a really hard, uncomfortable question right now. In a divided world, is the world coming to us because of our demonstration of this? Are they saying, I've never seen that before, please. Show us how you created this. Because that's what God says will happen. When my light goes out, nations will come and go, teach us. We're in a time increasingly where the nations are not gonna go, hey, can I borrow your Bible? I'd really like to read it. Hey, do you wanna study the Bible? No, not so much. What God says the nations will always be drawn to is our example of living out God's just righteousness. That's what will stand out. Does that make sense? But there are obstacles. Here's a few of how we can put it under a bowl. And this is different from those individual ones that's for another time. These are community ones being conformed to our culture. Paul deals with this throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. He says you're looking just like the world around you. You're mimicking the culture, you're mimicking the steps of the culture, you just brought it into the church or you're blind to it or you don't mention it, you don't pay attention to it. Now, the, the church can cover our witness by becoming political according to the wisdom of the world and taking political sides and allegiances, but we can also cover up our light by ignoring those issues that are important to God's just righteousness by saying, you know, those are political issues. And it's funny to me because sometimes those who are the loudest and quickest to say, oh, we can't talk about that, that's political, are the most politically allegiant people in the congregation. They just don't wanna talk about it because you might step on their toes. We should be dealing with these issues but through the lens of God's word and God's wisdom and the culture that God has given us, not right or left. But we're so caught in that binary, you say, well, let's talk about this issue from God's perspective. And somebody says, well, what about, you didn't, you didn't talk about the other side. You're so stuck in that binary that you don't even see it. And there's a bowl over you. That's where, that's where we get stuck at. So we get conformed to our culture. Romans 12, Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He actually says, this is your worship. 
Don't come sing to me on Sunday morning if you're not this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, examine yourselves the body. If you're not this, don't take communion. Work on this. We use the weapons of the world. Paul warns of that, 2 Corinthians. We can actually use the weapons of the world to try to establish the kingdom of God. Jesus warned about that in Matthew. He said, people have been doing that from the very beginning. Remember that verse that we kind of misread for years about forceful men will take hold of the kingdom and advance it? And what he was actually saying there is people will use violence or the weapons of the world to advance the kingdom. Don't do that. We use power. We use might. We use impressiveness. At every turn, Paul was like, we're not going to use power and impressiveness because then people will confuse where the real power lies. They'll think it's in us and not in God's wisdom, which looks like foolishness to the world because it's the shape of the cross. It's sacrificial. Right? A church that, or, or a community that hides its light because of using the weapons of the world will become one that starts to brag about itself. You should, go, you should come out and see my church. See, it's very subtle. We should love the body that God has given us, but it's such a fine line to get to, oh man, we have the most amazing this and the, and the most brilliant that, and we never have divorces and we never argue and we all get along perfectly and our kids are like unbelievable and you should come up. And we're actually very subtly starting to use weapons of the world. We're boasting in things other than Christ. You should come see a group of people that agree on almost nothing and yet we're unified because we're one in Christ. We hurt each other constantly, but we lay our lives down and forgive one another. We mess up all the time, but the power is in Christ to unite us. That's literally what Paul did, did he not? You show me the passage where Paul's bragging about all his ministry accomplishments. He's like, I got thrown in jail. Uh, you name it, he's throwing himself under the bus every time I work with my own hands. Oh, you do, so you're lower class, huh, Paul? Every point, he's letting the power of the cross do the work. Kind of already talked about worldly wisdom, rejecting the way of the cross. These kind of overlap. We don't want to do it through sacrifice. We want to do it through power and impressiveness and might and show people how great we are. We want to grab, that's one of the big dangers for Christians as, as Christian movements get bigger, they want to start grabbing cultural power. We'll, we'll impose moral goodness on people. Ooh, that's so dangerous. 
because it sounds so good, but does it really move people to the cross and the kingdom of God? Or does it just give them a veneer of cultural goodness? Emphasizing half of the biblical doctrine of sin. Maybe that one confused you. Now we preach all the sins. Every one of them. You know what we tend to do, and I don't want to overcharacterize here. And by we, I mean 21st century Western Christianity. Let's, let's, that's as far as I'm going with the we. We emphasize all of the personal moral failure sins. We completely ignore the biblical doctrine of the powers and authorities that cause structural, systemic, organizational, cultural, national sin that creates the steps. And then we just talk about personal sins and we should, and we call people to repent from those, but they do nothing or very little about addressing the steps. They create righteous individuals, but not a righteous community. Because to be the righteous community, you have to be just righteousness. Dealing with these things. See, it gets quiet now. Because that's a lot harder. When Jesus says, I want you to be salt, light, my agents, agents of what? Go back and look at the Beatitudes. The humble, the poor, those who pursue just righteousness, those who create peace. That's the shape of this community that he's forming, that he's calling us to make disciples to. And in fact, I'm gonna overcharacterize here again. We, remember who's we, race to Matthew 28, let's go make disciples. That's the whole point of it all. But, We've, we've just raced by Matthew 25. Where Jesus said, you'll actually be judged by how you treat the marginalized. So yes, go make disciples, that's key. But as you do it, you're becoming a community that does not mimic the world with the steps, that does not mimic the world where the marginalized and the outsiders are kept on the fringes, somehow you are creating a community where I will look at you and judge you and I'm calling you to become a community where those who are marginalized and usually left out are actually the center of what you do. You protect them, focus on them, bring them in now that you have that straight, go make disciples. Bring them in. And too often, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not against discipleship and growth. I'm not against evangelism, I'm all for that. But too often if we skip to the end of the book, 
then it start, the emphasis starts being on growth alone rather than what type of growth? A justly righteous community that then will be a light to the world. At that point, and I'm not advocating for this, but I'm just saying, at that point, you barely have to open your mouth. People will be streaming in, how are you doing this? This is what we're called to. Oh, I just went to the next song. There you go, that's my last slide. How are we gonna do this? We're gonna pray for boldness. Jesus was not mistaken when he called disciples and and as he's issuing calls for discipleship, it's almost always accompanied, his universal calls are accompanied by pick up your cross. That's where it starts. He knew how his life was going to end, but more importantly, he knew how his life was shaped. And his entire life was shaped like a cross. And remember, a cross is not just death. A cross is not just suffering. In the first century, a cross is lowering your status. It's shame. It's taking on the level of nothingness. That's why Rome did it. You are nothing, our power's in control. So Jesus looks and says, I will live a life where I empty myself for the benefit of others and then that's how I'm going to die at the hands of everything that Rome thinks gives it its place. Power and death. And I'm gonna defeat those. I'm I'm not gonna avoid them, I'm gonna walk right through them and come out the other side. But if we want to follow him, the only way is through that cross. It is through becoming a community that does not exalt status or power, that does not try to amass it, that does not cling to it, that does not value it, that does not become entranced with its temptations and powers. It is a community who says, no, thank you. We'd rather follow Jesus to the cross. We'd rather lay our lives down. We'd rather become a cross-shaped people. We are a people who understand that the measure of being Christ-like is the degree to which we look like Christ and live like Christ and invite the marginalized and those who are left out in, bring them into the community and create this, the just righteousness. That is when we will be salt and light. That is why we come together to encourage one another to go out and be that in the world. That's why we take communion, to remind us of who Jesus is, what the shape of his life is, what he called us to be and to do. And so we're gonna take communion here in a moment. I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna take, this is gonna be one of those communions where there's just gonna be silence. So that you can take some time to to reflect on what does it mean for us 
to be salt and light. We'll get to what does it mean for me, but what does it mean for us? What does the cross call us to? What does it look like to be this cross-shaped community that is salt and light to the world? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We don't deserve to be your agents. We don't have the power to represent you on our own. We don't have the wisdom to do it. I pray that as we take this communion, we are reminded of that. We are eternally grateful to you that we empty ourselves as a community and say, Spirit, show us how to be this. I know there are many ways in which we're already doing it, but show us how to, to embody this more and more. Not to make ourselves feel bad like we're blowing it in every way because that's not true. That would be to deny the power of you that is already at work in us. But let us be more and more productive, more and more allowing your grace and your power and your vision to flow through us so that when the world sees the light, they don't see us, they see you. And they see your wisdom at work. It's in Jesus' name we pray.